Good morning. We now join a live Bible study from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. Long apology and really outlined how awful he had been, and therefore the Father forgave him. But that's not what happens in this parable. Well, and that would be one of the confusing parts as well. The question was, why did the father consent to give uh, the younger son, the prodigal son, the inheritance? And that would have been one that people would have been asking, because like I had kind of mentioned, they would have expected the father to kind of rebuke the son and chastise him and kind of put him in his place, because this is the father, and this is very much a patriarchal society where the father holds high importance in uh it was seen as his job to keep his sons in line. Yep. Well, yeah, so the, uh, the second question is, would the father know what was ahead for his son? That we don't know. We can only kind of answer what the text uh, gives us, but we don't know if there was any indication before he took the inheritance that he'd waste it recklessly. Now, you could say that the fact that he was even willing to ask for his inheritance was probably a pretty good indication that uh, the son was not maybe the uh, wisest and most respectful or of individuals, but uh, there's nothing necessarily, there's no dialogue there to say, you know, the father warns his son, now don't waste this money. And the son says, you know, whatever, old man, that's not quite what we, we see here. We just have that the father divided it up. And so that would have been a very surprising thing to the hearers of this parable in the first century. Does that kind of answer? Okay. Um, let's see. Where were we? Oh, that the father came and run out, ran out. Uh, to greet the son, that before the son could even, the son who had greatly insulted his father, before he could even get to tell his father sorry, the father runs out, embraces him, and kisses him. This is what you would do for a conquering hero, much not, not what you do for the younger son that just spent half your, half your wealth, that'd be one part of it, but also that insulted you and maybe more personally hurt you as a father. Yet we see the father's compassion and his great love that he has for his son. Uh, and we get to verse 21. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this son was this my son was dead and is alive again he was lost and is found and they began to celebrate this would be the third or fourth depending how you look at it surprising thing that okay the father um had compassion, and he loved his son, so he welcomed him uh, back home. But surely he's going to make him now work for it, right? It's like if you were ever a kid and maybe broke one of your parents' uh, glass jars or something like that. Not that I ever did that. I did, but <laughs> in case my mom and dad are listening, that would be a... <laughs> I'm not confessing anything at the moment. But if you ever broke something and then they made you work to pay it back or something, that would be kind of what we'd expect the father to do, that... Uh, here's this son, okay, he loves him. Well, now he's going to have to work for him. He's going to be a servant. He's going to be uh, kind of paying for what he has done. 
And instead, the father not only puts the best robe on him, I'm assuming the son, because of his dire situation, probably did not have the greatest clothing on, was not adorned in fancy clothes coming back. It was pretty obvious, probably, that he had been uh, doing things like feeding animals, things you can't really stay clean while doing. And yet he puts the best robe on over that dirty, stinky son who's just come back, puts a ring on his finger, and tells them to get the fattened calf or cow, kill it, and have a party. And it's one of those moments where you kind of wish you could see the reaction that the Pharisees and scribes had when they first heard this. Because you can imagine at this point, they're thinking, okay, no, this isn't right. You're not, how can you be this teacher? This is not, this is not the way it's supposed to be. He's got to atone for what he did. He's got to pay for his sins. And it's interesting, too, here at verse 24, that's the last that we hear of, or hear from, the younger brother, and the father's interaction with him. Once the party begins, the focus shifts to the older son. And as we think about this parable, it's really broken down in two ways, and in a sense, they are both um, the same. You'll see, we'll see in a moment, that the older and younger son both have the same reality, and the father shows the same compassion towards them. As we read in verse 25, now his older son was in the field, and he, as he came and drew near the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And the servant said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in, and his father came out and entreated him. Now, I want you guys to think of like a party that you would see, you know, probably the house party or something. Maybe there's a little music, people coming in and out of your front door. In the first century, when you threw a feast like this, it was a much more communal celebration. It'd be like throwing a block party. You'd have, you know, the little cones up so that no one drove through the street, and then you'd have barbecues going, and you'd have music, and the community would be invited. And so when this older son does not come in, he actually insults the father uh, even as publicly and perhaps as bad as the younger son does. We often think, I mean, this is the parable of the prodigal son, but really it's the parable of the two sons who both sin against their father, that he is having this very public communal party, this feast to celebrate, and for a son to refuse to enter would have again been a great insult. For the son to say, oh no, I'm not going in there, would, it would have been a big insult if anyone from the community did not, uh, who, were, who was invited did not come in. But for the son to do it is again a public and deeply uh, hurtful insult to the father. And yet we read the father's reaction. Uh, he, when the father came out to him, it's the second time, right, that the father, the, the, one of the sons has insulted him or sinned against him, and he goes out to the son. And the father says to the son, uh, oh, but in verse 29, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. 
But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And the father said to the son, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this brother, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. It's interesting that uh, in Greek, the word it is fitting, what we translate as it is fitting is more literally, it is a must or it's a necessity that we celebrate. And this would have been the thing that really would not have made sense to the Pharisees and the scribes. Why would you celebrate this person who has wasted your money? And why would you want to throw a big party to celebrate his return? You should be kind of you know, let them back in your house, but maybe, you know, keep them with the servants for a little while. Keep them in the back. Don't make it a public knowledge. Maybe say he was off with a relative or something, and now he's back. And, but you would not be so public in proclaiming that your lost son has returned. And yet we read in the text, the father say, it is necessary. It's a must that we celebrate. Now, I want us to go back to the first three verses of the pericope, that the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. This situation of the prodigal son is very easily understood as uh, the tax collectors and the sinners are the prodigal son, and the Pharisees and the scribes are the older son, and what the Pharisees and the scribes were not understanding what Jesus was saying was that uh, you guys are both sinners. You are both reliant on the Father's compassion, and the Father gives you that compassion. But just because uh, the older brother did things, quote-unquote, the right way, does not mean that we hold it against the younger brother. Now, in the real world, there's obviously consequences to actions, and I'm not saying that, you know, life should be consequence-free, just the opposite. But rather, when it comes to spiritually, when we think of where we're at spiritually and how sometimes we can even be tempted to grumble like the Pharisees or the scribes were grumbling, like, I've been a lifelong Christian, maybe I've been a lifelong Lutheran even, maybe even a lifelong member of St. Paul's here in De Pere. And sometimes we be, can get caught up in thinking that we've always done things, quote-unquote, the right way. And therefore, God is happy with us. But this parable is a strong reminder that whether it's someone who's coming to church for the first time, or you're someone who's been in church every Sunday and Wednesdays in Lent for the last 80 years, we come not as one who is better than the other, but we all come as sinners, sinners who will have deep shame. Uh, if you've been in worship this morning already, you'll know the sermon for today. There's a focus on repentance. And it's true that we all come to the Lord repentant. We all need to come to the Lord repentant. But as I said at the start, the Sunday is known as uh, Litere Sunday, which is rejoice in Latin. 
And so it's interesting that in the midst of that repentance, what's the father's reaction? What's well, the same reaction that our father in heaven has? That he forgives us and rejoices in us being near to him. And we'll see as we look at the, the other lessons, but this theme that truly is a great moment of rejoicing, that the repentance cannot be separated away from the forgiveness of sins. That the repentance we make unto God is always with the mind that you are forgiven. And that is truly a moment, not only a moment, but a life of great joy. That all of us have been both probably the prodigal son and the older brother throughout our lives. And no matter where you might be now, the father rejoices. That God, our father in heaven, truly does rejoice in our repentance and forgives us our sins. Uh, and with that, I'll open up if there's any questions. I know we've had a couple already on the pericope. Uh, all right. Uh, so the question, oh. uh, so the question is, are we supposed to derive how forgiving the Lord is through this parable, or is forgiveness the main theme, perhaps, of this parable? Um, and I would say that it's uh, twofold, that it's the, kind of what I was maybe mentioning just a minute ago, that it's both we ought to repent, that none of us can sit on this high, you know, pedestal and say, well, you know, at least I am not so-and-so over here. And then the reaction of the Father, you're right, the forgiveness, it does highlight that. So there's the two sides of it, both the repentance side and the forgiveness side. And whether, uh, you know, I'd say probably the forgiveness does, if you were to maybe assign a, which one is the one main theme, that forgiveness of the Father would be the main theme, but it can't be separated from the repentance that uh, is shown, especially by the younger son. Uh, and then, is there another question? Well, I, we sit here and wonder whether this or that didn't happen, but isn't that telling? Isn't that the way to really make a point? Exactly, yes. The, the question was, Remember? do we remember that this is a parable, that this is not necessarily um, three living human beings that he's using. And that's exactly right. And in fact, the parable, when we think of it, it's really the situation that Jesus is in right there. It says that the scribes and Pharisees were grumbling and that tax collectors and sinners were drawing near. So here you have the father. Jesus is the son, obviously, but God, uh, God is one, father, son, and Holy Spirit. And you have God sitting amongst these people in the flesh and you have both those who you'd say were the prodigal's sons, the tax collectors, the sinners, those who uh, would not be seen as living very righteously. And then you also have the older sons and the Pharisees and the scribes, the ones saying, I've always done it the right way, so why, why are you uh, listening to these folks? Why are you paying attention to the ones who have squandered their, what you've given them? And so, yeah, I think that the of the parable is to see that the two uh, groups that are mentioned in verses 1 to 3, the tax collectors and sinners on the one side, and then the Pharisees um, and the scribes on the other side are uh, the older and younger brother, respectively. The younger brother being the tax collectors and sinners, older brother being Pharisees uh, and scribes. Yes? Yes. 
Yes. That, that is a great point. I, I, I had it in my notes I, that the father, one of the things you notice is that the father comes out to the sinner in both cases, right? Both the older brother and the younger brother. And as uh, you have said, he does everything. He orders the fattened calf. It's not like the son says, well, now that I'm back, why don't we throw a party? No, it's the father who is showing this great joy. And what a comfort it is to think about that, that in our repentance and in our faith, that God himself has this great joy that we draw near to him. So that is a great point, that it is the father who is truly doing all the, I guess you could say, uh, all the good things in the, in the parable in both cases. He did the forgiving, yes, and the celebration. You know, he... Yeah, he paid for it all, obviously, and you don't want to get too far with this parable, but there's obviously a correlation to our own forgiveness is based on the fact that Christ himself has paid the debt that we could never pay and that he took it upon himself. Yes? Yeah, the comment was that the father had forgiven the son even before the son could get out the apology. And that's exactly... And it was not a very good apology. Yeah, and it was not a very good apology. That's exactly exactly right. Yeah, the apology of, uh, uh, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And he doesn't even get to the part of, let me be a, a servant. The father, before you can even get there calls his servants over and says, let's get the fattened calf, let's get the party started, let's rejoice because the son that was lost is now found. And in some sense, it maybe would be better, we'd think about this perhaps a little stronger, um, if we called it something like the parable of the forgiving father versus the parable of the prodigal son, because the, we call it the parable of the prodigal son. Now, it's not bad that we call it that. I'm just, it makes the focus sometimes seem like it's, well, don't live like the son. When the focus is not that, but rather look at how forgiving the father is. Look how forgiving God is to both the younger and older brother. So it would be interesting. I don't know if I... I, don't, I think this one's probably going to be called prodigal son for the rest of my lifetime. But it would be interesting if we thought of it as the parable of the, the forgiving uh, father instead of the parable of the prodigal son. And take that true focus and put it on the forgiveness and on the Father's action and on the Father's mercy and compassion. You know, we read that the Father, when he saw him, he felt compassion. And, I mean, what a great reminder of God's love for us and his mercy and compassion for us uh, when we think of our own sinful nature and what was done in order that we might be forgiven. Any other questions? Oh, yep. I have not. Well, I'll have to check that out then. The Ken Bailey was the poet and peasant. Uh, and through peasant eyes. All right. Uh, any last questions before we move on to um, our epistle lesson? All right. Well, let's go to our epistle lesson. It's uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And uh, before we get too far into our text, I'm going to read just the start of chapter 5 because it gives you a, a good clue into the context of um, where uh, this pericope takes place in 2 Corinthians 5. 
uh, starting at 5 verse 1. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the, in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put, put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that that which, what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. For, so we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known to your conscience. We are not condemning ourselves to you, commending, sorry, commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance, and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So that gives you just a little bit of the context of where this pericope falls in terms of Second uh, Corinthians. And then we get to our text starting at verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. It's interesting here because from now on, it's whenever we start with a from now on, therefore, it's always like, well, let's think about what was just said. So if we remember starting at 15, and he died for all that those who live might not no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised... And therefore, from now on, because of that, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him as thus no longer. And the flesh there is what the world sees, right? When we, when we think of someone else, we often may think of them in terms of what we see, what you literally see in front of you. So what Paul is saying here is, though we once uh, regarded Christ in the flesh or saw him in the flesh and saw just what we saw or we, we thought just what we saw of him, we regard him thus no longer. And likewise, we don't regard anyone only in terms of what we see in front of us. And it's interesting as we think of uh, our brothers and sisters in Christ, but also our neighbors throughout the world, wherever you know, we may be looking at another human being and remembering that it's not just what you see in front of you, that it's not just, you know, whether or not 
they're young or old or have blonde hair or brown hair, but rather it's what God says they are, what he says all people are, that we cherish all people and we serve all people on account of him who died for our sake so that we live not only just for ourselves, which is the great temptation, right? I mean, I think if we're all honest and think about what do you do for yourself? Well, we look at what percentage of our day we spend on ourselves, it'd be probably pretty staggering versus living or uh, on uh, think, living for others or living for Christ's sake. We still fall into that temptation on a daily basis to kind of live for ourselves. But we are called as Christians to live uh, for the sake of him who died for us and was raised. And we get to verse 17 of first, uh, 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. In the Greek, it's literally, if anyone's in Christ, therefore new creature. Now, we make that a little sound a little better in, in English, but the emphasis and the, the uh, directness of the Greek, I think, makes a lot of sense. That when we... Uh, regard no one according to the flesh, and especially as we think about our brothers and sisters in Christ, we don't think of them as in the old sinful ways, but rather the fact that in Christ they are a new creature or a new creation, that the old has gone and the new has come. And I'm reminded of Romans chapter 6 where Paul talks about uh, if you've been baptized, you've been baptized into his death. And just as Christ was raised from the dead, you too are raised and have the newness of life. That in our baptism, we literally kill the old self and now the new creature, even though maybe what we see, what we maybe think about in terms of the flesh doesn't look all that different. I've never seen someone be baptized and then all of a sudden come out looking completely different. But in reality, that is the case, that the old has passed away and this new creature is there, this beloved brother or sister in Christ. And as we continue into verse 18, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Now we can kind of see why this was included with the gospel lesson of the prodigal son when we talk about reconciliation uh, and we just went over it in length, the reconciliation that took place in that parable, to think about that all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. That through Christ we are reconciled to God. That though we don't deserve to be, it's done. And therefore, he gives us a ministry of reconciliation, both on a personal level, but also on a spiritual level, that, that we uh, are the light of Christ to the world, that we serve our neighbors, not living just for ourselves, and through that light and through the word, that the gospel and the good news of Christ would be shared with them and that the Holy Spirit would bring about faith in them all. And so it's really kind of a, interesting thing if we sit and just think about it for a moment that we're called to have a ministry of reconciliation I think 
grudges are probably one of the easiest things for us to fall into a sinful trap of. Why? Well, no one necessarily sees your grudge. And two, again, we like to live for ourselves. And if it was just about living for ourselves, grudges would be a very uh, easy thing to have quite a lot of. However, Paul makes it clear here that we're given a ministry of reconciliation because of Christ who reconciled us with God. Because God does not hold that grudge, but rather actively work to reconcile us with him, sending his own son to die so that we could be reconciled. And in view of that, in view of God's mercy, we look at what we experience in life and what people do to us, and we're given this ministry of reconciliation. Uh, continuing to verse 19, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. I guess I kind of got ahead of myself there. I should have probably read 18 and 19 together, but that just highlights what I was trying to discuss, that it's not just a matter of now we're reconciled to God, but rather God has reconciled the world to himself, that he desires for the world to have the joy and the peace that comes from faith in Christ, knowing that your sins are forgiven. And in verse 20, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now there, there's two options. The we uh, could literally mean Paul and Timothy, or it could be a more collective we, but it's interesting he uses the word ambassador. And in the Greek, that's literally the one who runs an errand. Um, and so if you think about that, I don't know if we all run errands, right? Go to the store and you're like me, get two of the three items you were supposed to get and then have to make a second errand trip. But when we think about our lives, think about us being kind of errand boys for God. Now, don't take this too far, but simply in terms of that God is using us, the Holy Spirit working through us, through his word, as a means to which to proclaim the good news of the gospel to the world, so that the world can be reconciled to him. And it kind of takes on a little bit of a, maybe a deeper understanding that when we talk about being an ambassador for God, that there's a, there's a task we are given. It's not so that we get forgiven, but because we're forgiven, we're called to be his ambassadors to the world. Uh, and then verse 21, and it's one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And this kind of puts a bookend into everything Paul has just been talking about in the uh, 2 Corinthians 5. That he, Christ, became sin who knew no sin. And what does he mean by that? He made him to be sin? Well, it's death. That Christ was sent to die for our sake, even though he knew no sin in order that we, the world, the ones whom God is reconciling to himself, so that in him we might become 
the righteousness of God. That kind of sinks in for a moment to think about that, that we truly are God's righteousness, that we are given that gift, not because we live better than other people or not because we live, you know, we are in church every Sunday and not because we make sure to hit both church and Bible study and Advent and Lenten Wednesday services. No, we are righteous because of Christ and Christ alone, that it is Christ's righteousness credited to us. And it's a great reminder when we think about how we've been reconciled to God and in this uh, Lenten season where we focus on the, the repentant heart, the penitential heart, to remember that truly God has made us his righteousness. And so with that, we'll end this pericope if there's any questions before we are going to get into the psalm. Any questions? No? Okay. Let's go to Psalm 32. And again, in keeping with the theme uh, of the day, the Litere Sunday, the rejoicing, keep that in mind, what we've just read in the epistle and the gospel as we go through Psalm 32. Yeah, Psalm by David, as the title makes clear. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. It's interesting there, because when we think about blessed is the one, it's not blessed is the one who never sins. Blessed is the one who... Uh, has been a lifelong God-fearing Christian. Rather, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. As we think in terms of, David understands that the sin is is a given, and the true blessing from God is that that sin is forgiven, whose sin is covered. And then as we get into verse 3, And we kind of see the desperation that David recognizes of his own uh, sinful ways. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. This is David acknowledging that he knows that his strength and the things he's been given are gifts from God. They're not his own doing. And in fact, he knows he does not deserve any of these things because his bones are wasting away. And as we get to verse 5, David confesses to God, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Here you have David not only realizing his situation, but then also realizing what has been done despite his own sinful nature. We have at the start and at at verses 1 through 2 and at uh, verse 5, a focus again on forgiveness. And then David calls others to offer the same sort of confession. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. 
You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. And we're going to get to verse 11 in a minute. I know I stopped just short. But again, this is truly David understanding the desperation of his situation and acknowledging that he is dependent on God for his grace, dependent on God for God's grace, dependent on God's mercy for that grace. And then what is the result? And as we've seen, this is, again, the theme of the day. But I love verse 11 here, Psalm 32, verse 11. Therefore, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. If you think about it, it doesn't necessarily seem like that's positive of a psalm. It kind of, if you looked at just verses 1 to 10, and then verse 11, like we just did, it would seem like verse 11 almost seems out of place because it's not a super upbeat first 10 verses. It's an acknowledgement that blesses the one whose sin is forgiven and that while he was silent, his bones were wasting away. And then we get to verse 11, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. And see, here you have the true joy that comes from understanding the, the grace and the mercy that God has given to each one of us, given to the world. It'd be interesting if we had a uh, Sunday like that where we all got up and just shouted for joy, you know. Uh, obviously, you'd have to be a little careful about what you're shouting. But in a sense, that is truly the great Confession we make, and by confession there I mean statement of belief, uh, not a confession of sins, but the statement of belief that we make, that in Christ we are forgiven, and therefore we get to rejoice. We rejoice because, like the Second Corinthians 5 verse, uh, verses talked about, he became sin, Christ became sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become his God's righteousness. And here we have David remind us to be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. Righteous one could be uh, maybe a more easily understood English translation. The one who is righteous. Well, we looked at ourselves and we, as we reflect on our own behaviors, we know that not one of us is righteous of our own account. Yet, harping back to the Second Corinthians 5, or 5 he became sin who knew no sin so that we might become his righteousness. Now, this is where Luther gets uh, the famous, uh, he had a famous phrase, simultaneously saint and sinner. That truly we are God's righteousness. He has bestowed this upon us and yet at the same time we also confess and know the true faults and guilts of our sins and iniquities. Uh, is there any other questions regarding Psalm 32? I think we're going to run out of time to get to the Old Testament lesson. 
So are there any questions at all about the other two lessons or the three lessons, how they kind of pair together? No? We're good? All right. Well, let's end with a word of prayer. Dear Lord, we come to you truly glad, rejoicing in the facts that your word has shared with us this morning, that truly we have no business uh, being reconciled to you, yet you did it all for us, that through Christ we are your righteousness, and that you sent your only son to die for us, and for his sake forgave us all our sins. We pray that you keep our hearts focused and steadfast on you this week, and that we would serve you in all that we do. In your son's holy name we pray. Amen.